discussion with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delacqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hambra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the books, um, we just got back from the Radio Hamra cruise this morning. And it was an amazing experience. And for those of you that were not there, wish you were, Jatun Khali. But for those of you that were there, thank you so much for your love and support and energy and for making it another incredible experience. Um, we had a great time and really uh, just the energy the whole weekend was amazing, dancing late into the night and uh, even spontaneous break breakouts of music and singing all over. It was quite, quite an experience. So for those of you that were there, thank you also for your kind words. So many people came up and told us so many nice things and that does motivate us and inspire us to continue to do the work here at Radio Hamra. But uh, it was really a great experience for me to get to see so many of you. So thank you. And um, also to all the crew of the ship, but also all the crew from Radio Hamra and people that helped out. Thank you for everything you did and also commercial travel for uh, making it the great experience that it was. So hope to join or hope you'll join us for future ones that we do. Um, and again, thank you to all of you who were there. All right, so let's get into the books of the week. Before I talk about uh, the book of the week from last week, this week's book of the week is Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. Uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin is an associate professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and this book looks at how there, ra- there is racism or how race, uh, the technology industry might be further reinforcing some of the already existing racial biases that exist in the United States and abroad. And so looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is, or so it's called, So You Want to Talk About Race. So I want to talk about, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijuoma Aluo. And so as the title implies, so you want to talk about race, um, this is a book and a great book to help you better understand how to discuss race and racism, uh, more specifically in America, but it does relate to the discussions that you would have anywhere. Um, And it is often a topic that people shy away from because it is so sensitive and loaded and has so much uh, history to it but also because we're so afraid to get it wrong and say the wrong things even i feel that and i felt that before um, that it makes us actually avoid talking about very important issues and injustices that are going on and so this book is a great tool for anyone who 
wants to better understand race and racism in the United States, but also better understand how to and how not to have the conversations and some tips and guidance on uh, some do's and don'ts and helping you better understand yourself and, and also the people who are really suffering. And so the first thing is, so you want to talk about race. If you even want to read this book, it would first mean that you would acknowledge that race and racism are important topics to discuss. And so here in the United States, I think it's very clear that we live in a system and in a country where not everyone is given the same opportunity, the same chances, and has the same experience. And many people would like to deny that because it's a better feeling to think things are fair. We have a, a bias towards wanting to live in a fair world. So even if someone's a victim of a crime, a lot of times our first reaction is, well, well what did they do wrong to deserve to, to get hurt? Oh, they got murdered somewhere. Oh, maybe they shouldn't have been there at that time of day or something. Um, or even we've seen this, unfortunately, with cases of rape and sexual assault. Well, maybe she was, quote unquote, asking for it or did something that it wasn't that someone just did something bad to a good person or someone not doing something bad. They must have somehow created that. And so with race, we see that, but in a bigger scale where people would rather think we live in a fair system. And if some people do have experiences that are worse, it's from their own doing, or even worse, I've talked about some books that uh, look at this topic, it's something inherent in them. And we've seen that throughout history, that some races are inferior in different ways and weaker or um, more violent or more this or more that. And so they're going to have poorer results because again, it's their fault. So it's again, blaming the people who are suffering. Um, and we rather go to these types of understandings. And many people do believe these things, uh, that we live in a post-racial world and especially, especially post-racial America. We had President Obama, so there's no more racism. Racism is dead, but it is unfortunately very alive and well. And it's up to us to first acknowledge that and accept that, and then not just do that, but then talk about it. And as she also talks about one chapter at the end of the book is, of course, not to just stop at talking in words alone. Words are important. Talking is very important, but it should serve the purpose of facilitating action and change that actually results in things being different than they are. Um, so I really enjoyed this book. It was actually intense at times because um, Ijeoma Luo, the author of the book, does talk about things in a very real way. And I think that's good, but it does make you feel things. And I think she wants you to feel things. And that's good too, because even uh, talking about race and racism makes us uncomfortable. And one of my goals on this show is actually to help promote uncomfortable conversations, both, both on the air, but also in people's lives, um, whether it's social topics like race and racism or interpersonal topics where people are unhappy with each other or hurt or feeling different things uh, or relationships. People avoid lots of important conversations because they're uncomfortable. We have to recognize that just because a conversation is uncomfortable doesn't mean that conversation shouldn't be had. And actually, very often, uh, the fact that it's uncomfortable is more evidence and support that it's important to have 
that conversation because it's about something heavy, something meaningful. And that's what makes it harder to have, but even more important to have. And so we have to first accept the reality of what we're dealing with in the United States is that there is systemic ways that certain groups are treated much more poorly and unfairly than others. And people of color um, are the ones who pay the price for that, or the ones who are being oppressed. And the, the data back that up, and the problem with statistics and data is at times people can use it to interpret things in different ways, but there's a lot of things that show that people of color, especially African Americans here in the United States, get far worse treatment in a variety of ways. And it starts from, unfortunately, birth to the grave and also um, making the grave come sooner than it might for someone who is not a person of color because of how they can be treated and violence that might be done to them. So I hope that that's something I won't get into various statistics, although at one point I might, um, when she talks about, for example, uh, police brutality and race in the book and look, some of those statistics of even just being pulled over, um, driving while black, uh, that it's sometimes called being pulled over because of your race, not because of what you're doing. Um, so there's some statistics there. But uh, the experience of individuals of color in the United States is something that we must acknowledge and accept and recognize. And denying that is further perpetuating their pain and denying their pain and making it worse. So as uncomfortable as it is, we have to face that fact that this is the world we live in. And it can be tough to accept that because one, it doesn't feel good to live or to think there's some injustice going on, but two, it makes you feel like you're part of that system and we are. If we're not doing anything about it, uh, we are contributing to it. There's no neutral when there's injustice and she talks about uh, something like that in the book, um, but how if you're dealing with something unjust, you can't just remain neutral. If you're in a room and someone starts to horribly beat a child close to death, you can't say, well, I just did nothing. I didn't get involved. Well, that's um, siding with the oppressor and ignoring the one who's being oppressed. Um, so uh, that was a lot of kind of setup from the book, but I think this topic is so important that it does uh, warrant that. Um, but, uh, the book talks about race, racism, what it is, and, uh, I'm going to actually skip a little bit ahead to, um, a chapter called, what if I talk about race wrong, which as I mentioned, many people are so fearful of this that they avoid the conversations altogether. And I know I've been, um, that person too. It's affected me and being afraid or not sure, being sure and just avoiding it. And, and there's a, a sentence that might help us to realize you're going to screw this up she says because you're going to get it wrong sometimes we have to accept that but that's okay that doesn't mean don't do it just like you're going to screw things up when it comes to talking to your kids about sensitive topics but it doesn't mean avoid those things don't talk about sex and drugs because you might say something wrong so we have to face that um, but she gives some tips about uh, increasing the chances that you'll get them You'll get it more right. You still will likely get it wrong sometimes. And I'll go over some of those. The first one is state your intentions. And I think this uh, intentions is such a valuable word to me because it's no matter what we're doing, I always say we have to think about the intentions. 
whether it's posting something on social media, buying someone a gift, doing something nice, doing something mean, whatever it is, the action itself, of course, is important, but even more important often is the intention. So what's your intention in having this conversation, she says? You have to think about that. And I think what's so important to realize is that in today's culture, especially woke culture and wanting to look a certain way, very often we might be having certain conversations because we want to look a certain way. We want to uh, come off as being someone who is, you know, woke, progressive, open-minded, not racist, all the good things. And so that's what we're actually trying to do more than, let's say, understand a situation or understand what someone is going through or trying to make some progress. So we need to state our intentions, but I think it's so important to really understand our intentions. What am I trying to do? And as she talks about, sometimes people have different agendas. So two people will be having one conversation, but because they have two different agendas, two things going on, the conversation will likely go horribly wrong. Uh, the second one is remember what your top priority is a top priority of the conversation is, and don't let your emotions override that. So if you're really trying to understand um, the other person or racism better, that's more important than if you feel uncomfortable, feel angry, feel your pride is at stake or being insulted in some way. The most important thing is you're trying to understand. You're trying to learn something or contribute in some positive way. Again, so if you know your intention and your priority, it can actually give you some clarity and direction in the conversation. Also, do your research, she says. Uh, don't think that the person you're talking to, let's say it's a person of color and you want to talk to them about what they experience or about racism, don't expect that they are your Google, that they are going to answer all your questions. Go in prepared. Uh, the next one is don't make your anti-racism argument oppressive against other groups. So at times if we feel attacked or threatened in the conversation, we might attack in other ways as well, which of course won't lead to a better place. And related to that, the next one is when you start to feel defensive, stop and ask yourself why. And so a lot of the um, things she brings up in the book, of course, she's talking about them in the context of racism, but they're going to be true of having any kind of uncomfortable conversation or any conversation really. So you might start to feel defensive. And of course, you might feel defensive at times because you are being attacked in a way that's not okay, in a conversational way even. So someone might be insulting you in some way that's not okay or disrespecting you. So that defensive feeling can be healthy and good, but you have to stop and ask yourself, why is it I came to this conversation thinking I was going to come off as this very cool, progressive person, and now the person is making me feel like I'm part of the problem and not really seeing the whole picture, and now I'm getting defensive? Or really, yeah, they're saying something that I think crossed the line. And even still, pause and think about that. Uh, because she mentions throughout the book, um, we have to be aware that, let's say you're not feeling good about the conversation, but if we're talking about someone else's pain and suffering, that pain and suffering overrides or is more important than you just not liking parts of how the conversation feels. And this also relates in general when people talk about race and racism and their experiences, oftentimes people feel uncomfortable and they actually do what uh, number six is where she says, do not tone police. And I might talk a bit more about that later. But tone policing is to tell someone, you know what, I want to hear more about how you feel oppressed in the system, but the way you're doing it is just too angry. You know, don't be so angry about it. 
and more people will listen more, I'll listen more. And so tone policing is where we're trying to dictate how someone else should express their pain and their suffering in a way that feels more okay for us. So again, we're making it more about our feelings than the person who is suffering. So don't tell me about how much it hurts in a way that uh, feels right to you or describes what you're feeling. Say it in a way that feels good for me. And so that's why, again, we have to check our intention. If I'm trying to understand someone's experience, if they're going through something incredibly painful, then I should expect that it's going to be hard at times to hear it or talk about it, but that's because what they're going through is so hard, not because they should tone down the way they're saying that. So we actually might be contributing to a different type of oppression when we say that. You know what? Talk about your pain in a way I like. Don't talk about it in a way that you want to express it. Again, making it more about yourself. Um, and so there's some tips there about how to handle the conversation. And another one in this list, there's nine of them. Um, ask yourself, am I trying to be right or am I trying to do better? So again, am I trying to understand the situation better? See how I can be more part of the solution rather than perpetuating a problem? Or am I trying to be right? And we have to be real with ourselves. A lot of times it's more about being right and looking good. Oh, look at me and how not racist I am, that this is how I think about this. Is that really the right intention to have, to have this conversation? In a way, you're using the other person just to make you feel good. Hey, uh, person of color who's suffering, look at how good I am. Tell me how good I am. I'm one of the good ones, one of the good white people when it comes uh, in this scenario. And so we have to be aware of that. And the last one is do not force people of color into discussions of race, which is, again, going to be true of any conversation about anything. You have to have a conversation that goes two ways. They have to want and in a way essentially consent to having that conversation. True about race or whatever it is. If you're upset with your partner and they say, I want to talk now, and they say it's not a good time for me, you can't force them to talk about it. But here when it comes to race, we have to recognize that they might not want to talk about it or it might not be the right context or they don't want to talk about it with you. And if your intention is really to try to understand then you probably will respect that. But if your intention is more about wanting to get something from it for you, then you might be more resistant. So again, it might be good to check that and recognize that. Now, there's so much in this book that I didn't want to just stop at one segment. So uh, I'm going to continue talking about the book, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijioma Oluo. After the break, we'll be right back. Back. Continuing the discussion on the book, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijioma Aluo. Uh, and I was sharing some of the tips that she had for how to improve the chances that the conversations won't go wrong, but inevitably they will. And uh, there's some great tips there on that. I want to move on to some other topics that she covers in the book. Another one, um, this is a topic that can bring up a lot of feelings and reactions of people. It's related to privilege. So there's a chapter titled, why am I always being told to, quote unquote, check my privilege? And as she discusses in the book, at times people use this phrase in a way to almost shut down an argument. And so people associate it with that, that, oh, it's just something people say, check your privilege um, to basically win the argument, say you're wrong, they're right, and you should basically apologize for it. Um, but really, privilege is not that complicated, as she says. Um, she says, privilege in the social justice context 
is an advantage or a set of advantages that you have that others do not. And so again, this is another one of those concepts that can ruffle people's feathers because they don't feel good to say that something that's going well in their life or some things uh, that they have might be related to advantages that they had. So um, white privilege is the most common one you'll hear, but it can be about anything, sexual orientation, uh, being able-bodied versus disabled in some way. There are privileges that we have being born in a certain society that others do not have. And we'd like to think that every good thing we have in our life was due to our good work and being a good person or hard work. But oftentimes we have to recognize that as a male, it's easier for me to do certain things in this world. Uh, as someone who had some support in school, I had a different experience than someone who might have had to work and raise kids at the same time. And so I'm still proud of getting a PhD and going to school and working hard like I did. But I do recognize it's different than someone else's experience. And I sometimes think about this. I've worked with clients dealing with different circumstances that you go to a graduation and let's say there's 200 people on stage about to accept their degree and it's wonderful and they all should be proud. But you know that those are 200 very different experiences and some people are going to face way more challenges than someone else. So they are getting to some certain finish line, but the obstacles they had and the different types of advantages and disadvantages that they had in that race to get to that finish line might be quite different. So it's not just one thing that's happening there. It's lots of people doing lots of different things. So um, privilege is just a recognition of that. It's not that, in my opinion, that you have to apologize for it, as is often the case. I think sometimes on the flip side, people trying to look woke at times, again, thinking about the intentions, if it's just to look good, they might say, you know, I'm so sorry for my privilege. And they just apologize for it. I acknowledge it. And just that statement of I acknowledge my privilege uh, makes them feel like they are being the good guy or good girl. And that's it. That's all that really matters. But the intention of is it important is recognizing that. Because if you recognize your privilege, you can't give it back. I can't go back and change what my experience has been in my life. Um, and even like I was saying about my certain advantages when it came to schooling of having the support that I had. But if I recognize those and genuinely recognize them and also recognize that it's unfair for others to not have those same privileges, those same advantages, or essentially if it's a more even playing field and there would be no one with a specific advantage, everyone would have the same opportunity, then I'd want to fight to make that right, to make it more fair. But first I have to acknowledge the privilege existed, which a lot of people will resist because again, it doesn't feel very good. But the truth is we live in a world where not everyone has the same opportunities, the same chances, gets to have the same experiences and that affects outcomes and it is not fair. We have to recognize that and want to make that change. So checking our privilege, yes, it can be used by some in a phrase that might just be a blanket statement to win an argument or to shut someone down, but there really is something there. And so as is often the case, we can look to someone using something in not the right way and then throw the whole thing out, throw their baby out with the bathwater. But just because you maybe have heard people use that phrase in a way that you thought was not okay, or even maybe was not okay, doesn't mean that the, the term itself and the concept has no meaning. It is important for us to recognize our privilege. 
and also because of that recognize those who don't have that that those who are disadvantaged and to try to make things more fair for those individuals and then the next chapter and she says there's um a logic to that is about intersectionality uh, which is another one of the terms in um, race and uh, not just race but also of course because it's intersectionality different aspects of people who are dealing with certain minority status or disadvantages um, but an intersectionality or intersectionality is about when people the same individual or different individuals might have different parts of themselves that might have um, I'm really not saying it very well. Uh, different parts of their identity might affect their experience. So, for example, we can talk about feminism, but the experience of a black woman might be different from that of a white woman. So if we just talk about feminism and all women as a monolith, we might not recognize the experiences of other individuals who might have a different experience than that, who might actually be disadvantaged in a further way or different ways. And the, 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 the term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, looking at the experiences of women of color. And so this relates to privilege because once we recognize all the different ways that we can be privileged or have privilege, we can then see the different ways that someone might have the lack of privilege or the disadvantages. So I'm an able-bodied male, so if I think of those privileges, I can recognize if you are a female who is uh, disabled, Those are uh, that's a very different experiences. And so those advantages on the flip side would be um, a recognition of how someone might be suffering. So intersectionality is this recognition that even when you are trying to make a positive movement and positive change, recognizing that are you including everyone within even that group that you're thinking about? Because it might be different, even let's say you're Iranian-American trying to make things better, or Iranian Americans, if you don't recognize the challenges of someone who is poor and Iranian American, you might not realize that you're just trying to help, or you might end up helping just wealthy or Iranian Americans of a certain class, but not ones who are lower. So that chapter talked about how we have to make sure we're inclusive and think more deeply about what that really means to be inclusive, that many people might be having different experiences because of factors that you might not be considering. Um, other topics in the book, again, it's uh, one that I'd highly recommend because it covers so many very important things related to um, race and racism in America, uh, is police brutality really about race? So again, as you can see, a lot of the chapters in this book and the topics that are covered are things that bring up a lot of feelings for people or can bring reactions, and that's the point, is for us to talk about these things and to, to help us understand a little better these issues and then how to talk about them as well. Um, but she talks about her own experience being pulled over uh, as a black driver. So she says, my fear as a black driver is real. The fact is that black drivers are 23% more likely to be pulled over than white drivers, between 1.5 and 5 times more likely to be searched, uh, while shown to be less likely than whites to turn up contraband in these searches, and more likely to be ticketed and arrested in those stops. This increase in stops Searches and arrests also leads to a 3.5 to 4 times higher probability that black people will be killed by cops. And then um, she adds, this increases the same for Native Americans interacting with police, a shamefully underreported statistic. I was not aware of that. So we can see that um, police brutality and issues with the police 
is race involved? Now, when you look at one individual issue or case, can you say definitively, let's say if a black person is pulled over, it had to have been because of race? You can't say definitively that time it was. But when we look at the statistics, we know that it is a factor and that people are having different experiences based on their race. So we can't say that it's not about race ever. And when we see these disproportionate statistics, we realize something is going on. Um, so this is another one of those issues where people will say, you know what, it's not about race. The police are pulling over people or getting involved just because people are doing something wrong. They're protecting, they're serving. Um, but we see that that's not the, the case. People are not being used or are not getting the same uh, experience with the police because they're being treated in different ways. And we have to recognize that you might not be aware of what it's like to be someone else living in America, interacting with the police in a certain way. You might think, no, they're just there to help us and serve us. And of course they are, and they do a lot of good, but not everyone is going to have that same experience. And even as I'm saying that, I recognize um, people might have different reactions to that. And this is where we at times fall into the problem of having these false dichotomies. Either you're in favor of police and you care about police lives or you care about African-Americans lives. And it has to be one or the other, either black lives matter or blue lives matter when they both can matter. I don't want police officers to die, but I definitely don't want African-Americans to die. Um, and especially at the hands of police in a way that is unfair and unjust. And so we can have both. It doesn't mean we don't care about police, but we can expect more. We can expect the system to change. It's not just some bad apples that are doing some bad things. We know the systems are, are there and that racism exists in the country and that's going to affect how individuals relate and react to people of different races, unfortunately, and that itself has a big impact. So all these issues, of course, are going to be interrelated in some way because as far as, uh, as long as there's racist beliefs and stereotypes of certain groups of people being a certain way, that's going to affect how we automatically respond to people. We can look at those implicit biases as well. Um, there's also a chapter on the police, uh, sorry, the um, school to prison pipeline. That was a very uh, emotional one for me to read because I do work with the children on Skid Row who are mostly black and brown children and seeing how they are from a very young age not given the same opportunity. Um, there's statistics showing that African-American children are more likely to be suspended for the same actions as white children. So already they're being treated in a, a racially profiled way. Their actions are seen as more aggressive, more needing suspensions and expulsions. And so, of course, this is going to contribute to how these kids feel about themselves, how they feel about uh, the educational system, the system in general, how the society feels about them, um, and it's more likely to lead to them ending up in prison. And so one in three black men, I believe, is the statistic will be in prison or in the prison system at some time. And so this, again, we have to recognize is not because something inherent in them, it's something inherent now in our system that needs to change. And so that chapter made me think of those kids that I work with, and I already feel it all the time that of course these children are not given um, a fair shot at life they're not given the same opportunities most children have and all children deserve 
And that breaks my heart always in reading that chapter. Um, resonated very deeply in, in, in wanting things to be different because it's not okay. I, I do want to wrap up now because I have two full segments on the book, but it is just that, a book that can be talked about at length. And so uh, she talks about it at the end of the book, a few pages, um, basically a discussion guide on So You Want to Talk About, So You Want to Talk About Race, so to talk about this book. And I highly recommend it for individuals to read it, but also uh, to have book clubs and discussions about it because that's what the book is about is to have those discussions, but of course not to just stop at those words to then bring about change. So I hope you'll read it and share your thoughts with me if you'd like. Um, so that was the book, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijioma Oluo. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, for the last segment, I wanted to share some thoughts on uh, the memorial of Kobe Bryant, which was held today at the Staples Center. Um, because we were coming back uh, from the cruise, I actually had to miss the beginning part of it. And um, I did see clips from the beginning part of and Vanessa's speech, his wife, uh, which was heartbreaking. But I did get to see most of the second half, I think. And I cried even more than I actually expected I would. I, I just got home and turned it on and just was sobbing. Um, and it was heartbreaking, very sad. And so just wanted to share some of the thoughts on that one about grieving itself and how painful it can be. And yet how we, there's no obviously manual or guidebooks. Well, there's lots of books on it, but most of us don't know exactly what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to go through it. And the truth of it is, of course, it's just going to be hard. It has to be difficult. And part of what makes it so difficult is that it's hard to say goodbye. It's painful because we love our loved ones. We get close to each other. We get attached. We create meaningful relationships. So it hurts when they end. And so one aspect of of this process is to recognize that the pain that we're feeling is a reflection of a goodness of that person and the goodness in our relationship and love that we had for them and with each other. That's, that makes it painful uh, when you really love someone and you lose them, it hurts. And so I think we don't need to deny that pain. It, it can be better for us to embrace that pain and acknowledge that pain that it hurts because of that. Um, and so many people were saddened by the death of Kobe Bryant. People, of course, that knew him very well and they were sharing their words, but others like me who, I mean, I guess I saw him up close but never had an interaction with him other than me screaming uh, for him at, either at the TV or at a game. But I was crying too because of that impact he had of seeing him and, and the connection I felt with him and what he represented and what he did. So his impact was what made it, um, people get so affected by that. So, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. Another thing is, you know, death is a, in a way, an equalizer and that it hurts everyone. Um, you know, I was talking about race and racism in the book. So you 
uh, want to talk about race by Ijo Malduo. Um, and one way that we humanize one another is when we see pain and realize that others suffer just like we suffer and about the same things. I, I won't get into this now, but actually when I'm saying that, there's a lot of research showing that even within the medical field and with doctors and, and people in general, there is this misconception or there's this idea that uh, African-Americans experience pain differently or um, physically can tolerate more pain or we don't listen to their cries for pain as well as we do let's say whites and that's heartbreaking it's so sad even this is again within the medical field and there's a lot of research supporting this uh, even looking at mortality rates for women giving birth that's much higher for african-american women even when you control for things like um, status and wealth uh, and things but anyway uh, we all do hurt the same and it always hurts no matter what when someone dies, when we see the humanity in other people, it could make it easier for us to recognize they're not as different as we think and are led to believe by society. Everyone hurts. And that's actually another thing with um, lots of people's death in the media, but Kobe Bryant's is another one of those where you see people crying of all different races, backgrounds from different countries. So we all hurt because we all lost something. Um, and so that to me was also interesting to remember that everyone does hurt the same and we see that when we see people who, who have been lost but also when I said it's an equalizer it does make us realize what's important in life and I know actually Parham my brother um, he gave a great talk uh, over the weekend on uh, does money buy happiness or does money make us happy and he talked about a lot of different things but there was this theme that it does to a certain point, but then other than above that, it won't. And also that the thing that does make us happiest or contributes to our overall well-being and happiness in life is the quality of our relationships, the love that we feel. And so it doesn't matter how much money you have, but when you lose a loved one, you hurt. There's no balm for that pain that money can buy. So... It can be painful whether you're poor or rich. Of course, I'm not saying it means other things are equal, but that pain is still there. And even that itself might be a reflection of that, that when someone we love dies, we still hurt no matter how much money you have because that's not the thing that's going to make you happy. Money doesn't make you happy, which is why when you lose a loved one, you're still going to be unhappy no matter how much you have. It won't protect you from that because that's the thing that really mattered. That's the thing that is going to make you feel good when you have it and also hurt when you lose it. Uh, we can't overcome that pain. There's nothing to make up for because those are the things that really matter. And so we re realize that and recognize how much we should invest in those relationships. Yes, money can be good and we need it, but we want to take our time to invest in our relationships both in the time we put in them and how much love we share the kindness we give to one another and give to those that we care about because those are the things that really do matter and I know it's very cheesy and cliche 
uh, best things in life are free. I think Paho mentioned that over the weekend too. Um, but it's it's cliche because it's true. And so we don't want to lose sight of that. And now coming back to the grieving process itself, uh, I think, as I mentioned before, technology, the pain is so important. We, we don't want to deny that. We live in a culture that's obsessed with happiness and feeling good all the time. And very often we think that's the goal of life is to always feel good. So if something makes you sad, we think we're supposed to resist that. We're supposed to fight it. And if you're a loved one and you see someone sad, we think we're supposed to fight that. Oh, no, don't be sad. You don't need to cry. You know, he's in heaven. He's in a better place. Um, he would want you to be happy. Various things that we say, which seem to be well-intentioned, but really come from a place of let's just get rid of the feelings that don't feel good. Let's get rid of sad feelings because it doesn't feel good and we're not supposed to feel that way. But we really do have to recognize that that sadness is part of the healing process. Just like if you break a bone, you need to let it rest. It's going to hurt and you also have to give it some space to rest. When your heart breaks because you've lost someone, you're going to feel pain and you need to give it time to heal. That's, that's how things work. Things get hurt, they need to heal. And so feeling sad is a big part of that process. Now I won't get into the stages of grief because we do go through different emotions uh, in that process. It can bring up a lot of feelings. If it's someone you had a relationship with, you can also get some bad feelings that come up and that can be very challenging. How can I be mad at someone who is now dead? How can I still be upset or hurt by things they did or didn't do in my life? And that's another reality of life is that we can love one another, but it doesn't mean there was never bad moments or hurt feelings in any relationship. Any meaningful, deeply connected relationship will also have hurt in it. That's just part of how relationships go. When we get so close to one another, when we care about one another, we have the capacity to do so much good, but also in the process, sometimes some hurt comes and we accept that as the price we pay to be in relationships or what's needed. We have to be able to have that closeness and with that closeness comes some pain as well. So that can be hard for people to process. How do I deal with these feelings? And so they can feel guilty. How can I be upset with someone who's now gone? How can I be mad at them? How can I uh, still be upset about this? And you can, you can feel both. You can forgive them still, even if you didn't do it while they were alive. Um, but you can feel that in the moment and hopefully forgive them to let go of that negative feeling that's attached to it. Doesn't mean you'll ever be okay with what they did or uh, will say that it was, it was okay. But you might not hold on to that same feeling about it. And you can still do that. It might make you regret never having those conversations with them. And to me, that's also another reminder to have of, you know what? I might not get the chance to resolve these things with them if I keep waiting. I will lose that opportunity someday. And so it's not only about expressing our love to one another, which of course we want to do, give each other love, share that love. I think Jimmy Kimmel at the end of the memorial said something about hug the ones you love. Um, so give that love, but it's also have those conversations. And I really didn't expect to make this tie in, but I was talking about the book, So You Want to Talk About Race and saying how we 
don't want to avoid uncomfortable conversations because they're exactly that uncomfortable. They don't feel good. And so that feeling of discomfort in the moment will always push us away from it. That's how we are. The feeling in the moment will be the one that often dictates what we do if we don't think about it to override that, to realize, you know what, I know this doesn't feel good, but I want to have it anyway. And as I mentioned in the first segment, I know it doesn't feel good, but actually the fact that it doesn't feel good is part of why it's so important to have this conversation because it has all these intense feelings in it that deserve to be looked at and resolved and can be resolved if we talk about it, but just holding on to it and avoiding the conversation won't make things any better. So along with showing our love to the ones around us, let's not forget to have those conversations, the ones that might be unpleasant, because you might think, well, we only have so long with each other, so let's make it always good and positive. And there's something to that. Let's have good times together. Let's enjoy each other. But avoiding the pain, avoiding these negative feelings doesn't make them go away. It only will make us further apart from each other. So even those good times won't be as sweet when you have those negative feelings between one another. When you have these unresolved issues, then when you have those sweet moments, they won't feel as good as if you actually resolve them. Then when you really have those good moments, you'll be so much deeply connected, so much more deeply connected, and there won't be that bad feeling that you're holding on to. So it'll be so much more beautiful what you share with one another. So having a conversation that doesn't feel good in the moment is oftentimes the most loving thing we can do and one of the best things we can do for our relationship or relationships and for our loved ones. Um, but coming back to the pain, it, it's so bad. I, I think all of us can only imagine what Vanessa is going through, losing a daughter and husband on the same day. Um, it's very painful and heartbreaking. And that she was even able to talk today was remarkable. And while I say that, I also recognize being aware of the pitfalls of saying someone is being strong when they're going through a grieving process, which usually means they're not crying or or doing something. And, you know, we definitely saw her crying, which, of course, uh, I, I think was expected. Um, but I think I always want to be careful about that because often people perpetuate this idea that you should be strong, which means don't cry, and that's the right way to heal, when really we need to be able to feel that pain, and we shouldn't deny that in, in order to look a certain way, or for people to see it a certain way, or even just for ourselves to not judge ourselves um, negatively. So, um, of course, condolences to everyone affected by that tragedy, but we all are dealing with different losses, and so whoever's listening out there, I'm sure many of you, almost all of you are dealing with pain or have pain from people that you've lost in your life. And uh, it can be a lifelong process. Oftentimes, a very common experience or quote that people will say is, well, when am I going to get over this? Or they might say it about someone else, when will they get over the loss? And what people tend to recognize is when it comes to those big, significant losses, you never get over it. Life will never be the same. And maybe it makes sense that it'll never be the same. It doesn't mean life doesn't go on. It does. Uh, and you might learn more and more how to live with that pain. But it might always leave a scar on your heart that doesn't go away. And that might be the rest of your life. might be with that scar and figuring out how to deal with it. And we have to give ourselves that space and other people that space that life might not ever be the same based on what they went through. 
And we have to accept that and recognize that. And if someone needs to be sad for some time, to give them and give ourselves that space to be sad, to grieve, to go through what we need to in that process. Don't deny yourself and don't deny others that healing that they will need. And also when we're there for someone going through something like the loss of a loved one, of course we can't do anything to bring them back. Um, of course they themselves and you would want to do that if you could do it, but you obviously cannot. All you can do is be there for the person. And that itself is worth a lot. Even I was talking to my cousin Farshid and he was talking about some things he was going through and having um, his loved one nearby, he said, was making something much easier for him or he was realizing how much just the presence was important. And that's true for all of us. Sometimes we just want someone to sit with us. You don't have to make us laugh. Sometimes we might want that, but you don't have to cheer us up. You can't take away the pain. You can't change what has happened, but being there will make it at least easier or less hard. It'll still be hard, but you can make it less difficult and challenging. And that's worth everything. That's all we can get from one another. And that's why we have one another to make this life that we're living, which can be hard at times, a little bit less hard and to make other moments much more beautiful. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.